All right. Thank you, Merleys, for, uh, for leading us through that. Um, such an important reminder, um, Jody, like you said, that um, God has stepped into our world. He's brought peace into our world. He's brought hope and joy and life and light into our world. And yet, um, there is kind of a darkness as well to the, the story of Jesus and, and the story of our lives. And the beauty of the scriptures is that God is honest about that, that the scriptures are honest about that. We're going to be looking at that today. Um, welcome to Christ Community Church. Those of you guys who are here, those of you guys who are watching online, welcome. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and thank you for joining us as we celebrate this last Sunday of Advent. Uh, last week, we saw how, how joy comes into the world through Jesus. We saw this glorious moment that we just read about, that Seth just read, about this glorious moment where the wise men come and they bow down and they worship before Jesus. That joy has invaded sorrow, that hope has come to despair, that the light has shone into the darkness. But, but as we've said, and as we all know in our lives, Christmas doesn't necessarily mean the end of darkness. It doesn't mean the end of sadness or pain or injustice in the world. It means that a light is shining in the midst of the darkness. And I'll be honest with you up front today. Our passage today is a dark passage. It's one of those passages that we don't typically like to talk about at Christmas time. You will never find this passage, thankfully, you will never find this passage portrayed in a nativity scene. You will never hear Christmas carols that are written about this story. But this passage that we're going to look at today, this passage in Matthew chapter 2, is extremely important for what Matthew is showing us about Jesus and is extremely important for real people living in the midst of a real world, in the midst of a dark year, in the midst of a dark world, in the midst, frankly, sometimes of the darkness of our own lives. Christmas is not just about Jesus coming and making everything merry and bright. It's about the fact that God is with us. That he is with us in the midst of our brokenness and our darkness, in the midst of the brokenness and the darkness, darkness of this world. Darkness and pain and oppression are not just things that Jesus knows about cognitively. They're things that he experienced personally. And that, honestly, is what makes Christmas good news. That's what will enable you and me to have joy that endures in the midst of darkness, to have light that, that, that continues to bolster us through the midst of despair. Because the God who reigns on the throne of the universe is not distant. He's not remote. He is not disconnected from our suffering. He is the suffering king who is with us in the midst of our suffering. So I know initially when we look at this passage today, it's going to feel like a downer. It's going to feel like one of those passages that you look at and you say, man, I kind of wish this wasn't in the Bible. I kind of wish this wasn't in the story of Jesus, but it's in the story of Jesus and it's in the story of Christmas for a very important reason because what we see is that we can be honest about the world and honest about our lives and yet God gives us light in the midst of the darkness and he gives us hope in the midst of despair. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained by the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. And over the last four weeks, we've seen that Christmas is all about the coming of the king. We've been awaiting the coming of the king. We've seen this beautiful reality that light has invaded the darkness. But we all know this. We know this experientially in our lives and in our world. The darkness doesn't just give up simply because the light has come. The darkness doesn't just step aside and let the light have its way. And that's really what Advent is all about. Advent gives us a word of hope. Advent tells us that the good news, that light has invaded the darkness, and that one day the light will completely eradicate the darkness. But Advent is also realistic about the fact that there is still darkness in the world, and there is still darkness in our own hearts. And so we long for the king to come. We long for him to step into our lives in new and fresh ways, and we long for the light to shine in the midst of the darkness. And in this passage today, you'll see three things that happens when the light shines into the darkness. Three realities when the king steps in. First thing that you see is that when the king comes into the world, there is a conflict of kingdoms. A conflict of kingdoms. The king, the coming of the king always produces conflict. When the true king steps into our world, when the true king steps into our lives, there is always a clash of authority. You see this with Herod. He hated Jesus. He tried to get rid of Jesus. He was so hell-bent on keeping his own power that when he couldn't locate Jesus, he slaughtered every baby boy in Bethlehem. Now, that is an appalling act of evil. That is a horrific act of evil. That's right there in the story of Jesus' birth. And yet we all have this inclination in our same hearts. The Bible tells us that all of us are naturally bent to hate God, to rebel against God, to resist the rule of God, because I want to be my own God. I want to be my own king. In a sense, there's a little Herod living inside every single one of our hearts. And because of that, when Jesus comes, when the true king invades and begins to set up his kingdom, there is a clash of authority. There is a conflict of kingdoms. If if you're honest with yourself, if if I'm honest with myself, I feel this in my own life. I feel this like every day. Can you guys hear me? Is that good? All right. I feel this like every day where where I still want to be the king. I mean, I've walked with Jesus for decades. I love him. I want to honor him. But there is still this residual resistance to him in my heart. There are still places in my soul where I resist Jesus and his kingdom. 
And the Christian life is a continual fight to submit to the lordship of Jesus. There's this clash of kingdoms where I need to decide day by day, minute by minute, second by second, who is the king of my life? And so I just want to tell you today, if you feel that, if you feel this tension, this, this battle inside of you, if you feel this struggle in your soul, if you feel sometimes like a schizophrenic Christian, then I want to encourage you today. You are living the normal Christian life. You are doing, you are following Jesus like it looks in real life. The light is pushing back the darkness in our hearts, and one day the light will dispel the darkness of our world completely. But don't grow weary in the meantime. Don't give up. Don't stop fighting. And when you fall, and when you fail, and you will inevitably fall, and you will inevitably fail, remember this, your Savior is not surprised by that fact. He is the gracious and merciful King who loves to forgive our sins, who loves to empower us to keep fighting, Jesus, when he stepped into our dark world, didn't come because there was something that we had to bring him. Didn't step in because it would be easy or because he knew that that, that we would get everything right. He comes for the broken. He comes for those who need his grace. Now, maybe you're listening to this today and and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Like, you look at this stuff and you say, okay, that seems like a nice story, but I'm not sure I believe all this stuff about God becoming man and dying and rising again. The first thing I would say is we're really grateful that you're exploring those things. And the second thing I would just say is I would encourage you to to pay attention to what's going on inside of you as you explore these things. Because if you really pay attention, you will notice that there is a conflict of kingdoms going on inside of you as well. None of us are neutral when it comes to Jesus. Thomas Nagel is a, a professor of philosophy and law at NYU. Uh, he's also an atheist. And listen to what he says. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. See, Nagel has picked up on something, honestly, even though he doesn't believe the Bible, that the Bible says all over the place, we all have a cosmic authority problem. And it's not a rare condition. In fact, it is the natural inclination of every single human heart. So wherever you land on Christianity, it's important that we're honest about our own biases. The difference between believers and non-believers is not about the intellect. It's about the will. It's not that one group is smarter than the other. It's about how we respond to this conflict of kingdoms. And so I would encourage you, if you're exploring the claims of Christ, to be honest about that. Be honest with yourself. Am I willing to question my questions? Am I willing to doubt my doubts? Do I just believe what I believe because I have a cosmic authority problem? Whenever you encounter Jesus, whether you are a Christian or whether you're an atheist, there will always be a conflict of kingdoms. And what concerns me about the way that so many Americans interact with Jesus is because most people inside the church and most people outside the church never feel this conflict. Many of us, if we're honest, we have a Jesus just like us. 
He loves the things we love. He hates the things we hate. He's a God who we've remade in our own image. And so let's ask ourselves honestly today, when was the last time Jesus contradicted me? When was the last time Jesus challenged me? When was the last time Jesus showed me that I was wrong about something? If you can't answer that question, then it's possible that you've not encountered the real Jesus. Because when the eternal, infinite creator steps into the universe, if he is God and we are not, then we should expect that he knows some things that we don't know. We should expect that there will be times when he will contradict us. We should expect that there is going to be this conflict of kingdoms in our hearts and in our lives. And when that happens, the question we need to ask is, who is the true king? Am I the king or is Jesus the king? This this coming of the king produces a conflict of kingdoms. And, And I want you to hear this today because I want you to know that if you're experiencing that, you are not the first person to experience it. It is nothing new. In fact, this conflict of kingdoms that we feel in our own hearts is part of a larger conflict of kingdoms that has been going on through all of human history. All the way back in Genesis 3. If you've read Genesis 3, there's this this promise that God gives in Genesis 3.15, and he says this. He says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's what's happening here with with Jesus and Herod. Herod is a picture of the serpent. He is a tool of the evil one who has been trying to destroy humanity from the beginning. But the scriptures say that Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus came to set us free from sin and death and shame and condemnation and judgment. But in order to do that, it says that his heel will need to be bruised. He will need to suffer in order to set us free. He will be rejected by those that he came to save. That's the second thing you see about the king. He's the rejected king. The rejected king. There is a sense in which Jesus' entire life was a life of rejection. You see it from the beginning. Now, we don't know exactly how old Jesus was when this happened. Most likely, he's still a baby. He's definitely under two years old, which is why Herod has all the boys under two killed. See, here's what we do when we talk about Christmas. When we talk about Christmas, we tend to stop at Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. We got this beautiful picture of the wise men coming and worshiping Jesus. But the fact is that if you read the Gospels, that wasn't the norm for Jesus' life. From the time he was a baby, he was hated and rejected. I mean, he and his family were homeless. They were refugees. They had to flee Judea because a maniacal puppet king was trying to kill him. And look where they go, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, if you're reading that for the first time, you think this is insane. The king of the Jews is seeking asylum in Egypt. That is not the way it's supposed to be. This is actually an indictment on God's people here. In the Old Testament, God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He rescued them from Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. He gives them his law and he says, this is what it looks like to live as my people in the world. And one of the commands you see over and over and over again in the Torah is that God's people are to welcome the sojourner. 
to welcome the immigrant, to welcome the refugee. And the promised land was supposed to be a place of refuge for outsiders on the run. But here what you see is that the exact opposite thing is happening. The king of the Jews doesn't find refuge in Israel. He has to run from Israel. He has to run and seek asylum of all places in Egypt, in this place that God brought them out of slavery. See, from the time he was a baby, Jesus was rejected by his people. He was an outcast. As soon as the wise men leave, Herod's trying to kill him. And as you know, if you've read the story of Jesus, Herod would not be the last person to try to kill Jesus. But God preserves the life of his son. And so the angel comes and says this in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. For those who saw the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew from the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. He would be called a Nazarene. Now here's the thing, that was not a compliment. In that society, your identity was largely defined by where you were from. And Nazareth was one of those places that nobody wanted to be from. In fact, when Nathaniel, one of Jesus' earliest disciples, hears about Jesus of Nazareth, his response is this. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of a place like that? But this is the way God does it, friends. God chooses the least likely. God chooses the overlooked and the rejected. When God becomes a man and brings salvation to the world, he doesn't come as Jesus of Athens. He doesn't come as Jesus of Rome. He comes as Jesus of Nazareth. The most influential man in the history of the world came out of some backwoods hick town that nobody wanted to associate with. Let me think about this. If you were going to start a movement to change the world today, where would you go? You would go to the centers of influence. You'd go to the centers of power. You would try to connect with the powerful people, with the influential people, with the wealthy people. You'd go to Manhattan. You'd go to Washington. You'd go to London. You'd try to connect with the upper crust of society. Now listen, I am not against people going to those places. I have pastored in Manhattan, and God is doing work there. But the king that we worship, friends, went by the name Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of the nowhere town that nobody wants. And all throughout history, he has built his kingdom on the margins. He has built his kingdom in the places and among the people who nobody else wants. This is the way God does it. This is the way God has always done it. God does things upside down from the way we would do those. He, he, he chose to bring salvation to the world through the Jews, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Egyptians, not the Chinese, not any of these other great, powerful, glorious empires through, through a ragtag group of semi-nomadic sheep herders. He chose David over Saul. 
He chose Leah over Rachel. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, he chose the things that are despised and rejected and weak and foolish in the world. He chooses the outcasts. Jesus was an outcast. We do this this weird thing in American Christianity where we get all enamored with celebrity. Like you get so pumped up when you find out your favorite quarterback's a Christian. Or like some singer accepts Christ as if now the kingdom of Christ is going to come because Bieber got baptized. And listen, Bieber needs Jesus too, okay? Celebrities need Jesus too. But that is not where God focuses on building his kingdom. Jesus comes to the poor, the outcasts, the people that the world never notices. Frankly, Jesus was poor. Jesus was an outcast. Jesus was someone that the world never noticed. And he comes to us and he says, I am welcoming you into my kingdom. Man, if we really get that, that will radically reshape the way that we look at the world. That will radically reshape the way that we look at power and wealth and politics in America. I know about the dangers of politics a lot, but here's why. Because I am convinced that the allure of political power is the most dangerous and the most prevalent idol in American Christianity. And, and by and large, it is motivated by fear. It feeds on fear. And friends, God has stepped in. The king has come to set us free from that fear. So many of us think and talk and act and live and worry and lose sleep at night as as if the kingdom of Christ rises and falls on our candidate or our party getting into power. But friends, that's not the way the kingdom works. Jesus of Nazareth never held a political office, but he is the most influential man in the history of the world. The early Christians were mostly poor and despised and marginalized, but they started a revolution that reshaped the world. The Romans used to mock Christianity. They used to say that's a religion for women and slaves, for those who are powerless in society. But those early Christians had a spiritual power that we know nothing about. Listen, friends, I want to say this clearly. God's not anti-politics but he is anti-idolatry. And we need to make sure that we are putting our hope in the one true king. And I want us to hear this good news today. The king has come. He is bringing his kingdom. He is bringing his kingdom in the most unlikely places like Chautauqua County. He is coming to people like us that maybe maybe it feels like the world overlooks us. That's where he builds his kingdom. That's where he does his best work. And nothing and no one in heaven or on earth or in hell itself will stop it. Herod couldn't stop it. Judas couldn't stop it. The religious leaders couldn't stop it. The Roman Empire couldn't stop it. Death and hell itself couldn't stop it. So let's live with that confidence. Let's live in that hope and in that joy and in that freedom. Nothing will stop the king and his kingdom. And here's the amazing news. The amazing news is that king has come for you. That king has come for me. In our brokenness, in our need, in our sinfulness. And so maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you feel rejected today. Maybe you feel forgotten today. Maybe you feel like an outcast. Maybe you feel like you've been marginalized. Maybe you feel like everyone has forgotten you. 
Friend, the good news of Christmas is that God has not forgotten you. He comes to the rejected. He comes for the rejected. God knows what it's like to be rejected. Jesus was the rejected king. But the rejection of Jesus was not arbitrary. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. His suffering had a purpose. In his suffering, he was fulfilling the promises of God. That's the third thing you see about the suffering king, the promise fulfilled. The promise fulfilled. Three times, you can see it in this passage, three times Matthew points to Jesus fulfilling promises. We just looked at one of them, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be what? Might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Back at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. One more, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. See, what Matthew is showing us here is that the rejection and the obscurity and the suffering of Jesus are not a mistake. These are part of God's plan to bring redemption to the world. And verse 15 is really the key to this passage, and I would say it is maybe the key to the entire gospel of Matthew. Verse 15, Matthew's quoting the Old Testament book of Hosea, and this passage that he quotes here isn't actually about the Messiah. It's actually about the people of Israel. Hosea 11.1, 1. when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. God says, Israel, I have loved you as a son. I, I fed you. I carried you. I, I taught you to walk. I healed you. I love you with everything in me but my son has walked away from me. You've run after other gods. You've, You've tried to find happiness and joy without me. And this isn't just the story of Israel. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of you and me. Our father loves us. Our father wants us to come home. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he sent his only begotten son. See, what Matthew shows us in this passage and what he shows us all throughout his gospel is that Jesus is the true Israel, that he is the true son of God, that he is the one who shows us what it truly means to be human, that he is the one who shows us what it means to experience a father in heaven who loves us, that he is the one who came to do for us what we have failed to do for ourselves. See, God brought his people Israel out of Egypt, but they rebelled against him. They turned from him. They walked away from him. But there was a better son who never rebelled against his father, who never turned from him, who never walked away from him, who obeyed him and loved him and followed him perfectly to the point of death on a cross. See, in this passage we read, when Jesus was a baby, he escaped death. But he would grow up and he would live a life of rejection and he would be rejected by the political powers who would execute him on a Roman cross. 
And he would be rejected by the religious powers who would falsely accuse him and convict him and hand him over to be crucified. He would be rejected by his own people who one moment would worship him and the next moment would shout out, crucify him. And beyond all that, he would be rejected by the Father. He would bear our sins on the cross and God the Father would turn his face away and Jesus would cry out in utter agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why would the Father turn his face away from the son that he loved? Why would he turn his face away from the son who loved him perfectly? It's because he was bearing our sin. Our sin has made us outcasts from the presence of God. But Jesus was cast out in our place. Our sin has cut us off from God, but Jesus was cut off for us. He took our sin. He died in our place. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. Jesus was rejected so that we would be accepted. Jesus gave up his home so that we could come home to the Father. Jesus died so that we might live. And if we're trusting in that, here's the word of hope. Here is our only hope in life and death. If we are trusting in his death and resurrection to make us right with God, then he sends his spirit to live within us. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. So whatever you are facing, friend, we don't have to pretend that the world is perfect. We don't have to pretend that everything is easy. There, this is realistic hope. This is light that shines in the darkness. Whatever we're facing, whatever we're walking through, he is with us and he is for us and he has not forgotten about us. When it feels like everyone else has forgotten about you, God has not forgotten about you. And nothing, nothing in heaven or on earth or from the pit of hell itself will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As you guys go throughout the rest of this holiday season, and as we get ready to step into 2021, I know we all think and we all hope, man, 2020 is going to be over. 2021 is going to be great. I remember people said that at the end of 2019 too. So we got we to gotta be realistic, right? But this gives us realistic hope. This gives us honest hope that we can face whatever comes our way. And we don't have to pretend that it's not there, but we know that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He is God with us. He is with you. He is for you, and no matter what you walk through, he has not forgotten you. Let's pray. Let's thank him for that. Father, the, uh, God, I thank you that, that you sent your son to step into the real world. Not a make-believe world, not a sanitized world, not, not a world where everything is just kind of shiny and perfect and in its, in its right place. But you sent your son to step into our brokenness, into our need, to, to come to us in the midst of our sin. And I thank you that, that Jesus isn't remote from us. Jesus, I thank you that you're, that you're a God who understands, that you're a God who, 
who knows what we experience, who knows the pain and the sorrow we experience because you've experienced it. But I thank you also for the good news that, that your suffering and your rejection wasn't a mistake. That it was, that it was for a greater purpose and that, that you suffered in our place and you died and you rose again. That you were cast out so that you could bring us in. That, that you, you left your home so that we could come home to the Father. So Lord, I pray. I pray that whatever happens in this coming year, I pray that whatever we are walking through right now, that we would remember that the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you that you are with us, that you are God with us. Remind us of that hope today and every day. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Going to send you out with probably the most well-known benediction, maybe in the Bible, at least the most well-known Christmas benediction in the Bible from Luke chapter 2, verse 14. It's the song of the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace be with you. Have a great week.